You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. <laughs> and tonight, in a slight change of plan, because this was going to be the guest podcast, do you remember? And we were going to do, we were going to do Trial of a Time Lord next week. <laughs> and the guests couldn't make it this week, so they're going to be on next week instead. And we've brought, we've brought the trial forwards. Yes. <laughs> well, that's got to be good news, hasn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> it, is, it is. Of course, I couldn't cram 13 episodes in to, to rewatch, so we're going to go by memory today, I think. Well, I always go by memory anyway, to be <laughs> fair. Yeah, and you, have be... a, you have a supersonic memory, though, don't you? Well, you I don't... don't. You don't have the memory of a, an average man. Or a child. <laughs> <laughs> Says Lee. Um, yeah, you could be right, actually. I don't know. But the thing is, I kind of like going by memory anyway, because that is... You know, unless you're actually watching a story, that's kind of how you're doing it anyway, isn't it? You go down to the pub with your mates and you just get onto the subject of Doctor Who and you start talking about things. You don't get to revise for that, do you? No, that's what this podcast is is like, really, isn't it? It's It's just a conversation. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we've got, um, we, we got our listeners who are on our Facebook page to vote again. So even though it is one story, we have split it up into the four constituent parts and we will be doing them in reverse order of how popular they were amongst us and our listeners. So um, we'll get on to that in a minute. But first of all, we've got an email. And also, of course, I want to mention again, in case people didn't hear it, about, I don't know, is it our offspring? I called it our offspring when I mentioned it right at the very end last week. <laughs> it feels like our offspring. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yes. Go on then, you say it. Well, it's the Diddly Dumb podcast. Brilliant title, by the way. Al No and Doc Hume and the Reverend Captain Hollow Poro, who were on this podcast two weeks ago, enjoyed the experience so much that they start their own podcast within days. Oh, it's going to be good, isn't it? That was a great podcast anyway to listen to. So, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, their, f- their first episode, they gave me a preview of it. But as we record this, it has gone out now anyway. And of course, it takes them a little bit of time just to get their, just to get themselves going. But once they do, they can all talk for England. So I think it's going to be a great podcast. Yeah, it did. It, <clears throat> yeah, it does. It does warm up as it goes along, doesn't it? Um, mm. And yeah. I think if you like ours, and I, I think theirs is fairly similar in feel and tone, mm. because it's not like one of these ultra-organised things, or it's, <laughs> and it's not like one of these things where everybody sounds like they're reading from scripts or anything. It's just a chat between the three of them. Mm. And give it time and they'll start biting chunks out of each other like we do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they they only met for our podcast... So they've got to really sort of get to know each other as well as the podcast gets going. So you are you know, the Simon Cowell of podcasts, Jr. Wow, well, putting just, together like a super group. Just call me Daddy. <laughs> that is weird. Have they got? Uh, have they got a theme tune? 
Uh, yeah, Al No uh, made the theme tune for it himself. Mm. All right, I'll have to have a listen to that. It's Big uh, Beat. Big Beat. Is it? Is that what you'd call it? What? That kind of stuff. Uh, bigger, bigger. Big really? Beat. Yeah, yeah. Kind of Meat Beat Manifesto type stuff. Somebody said... Anthemic. I think somebody said it sounded like the Sisters of Mercy meets Delia Derbyshire. That sounds brilliant. <laughs> Well, there you go. Well, it was on the end of our last podcast anyway. I played it. Because <clears throat> ah. I was in the early meetings, as it were, <laughs> which is a trade secret that I shouldn't have revealed, but nevertheless, there you go. I, I have done. Um, look, we ought to uh, get started. Otherwise, people are going to say, why are they talking about somebody else's podcast? Um, we've got an email. <laughs> this is from Nurse Howe. Right? <laughs> Not from Doc Whom, but from Nurse How. <laughs> and it says, Gentlemen, talk about plucking victory from the jaws of defeat. Pin a medal on the chest of whoever had the bright idea to change the format of last week's Blue Box podcast by inviting on three such engaging and charming young men as guests. Suddenly, we had thought-provoking, well-informed comment from the sophisticated world outside the EX postcodes. What a wonderful... <laughs> What a wonderful change from the louche teddy boy cynicism to which we were in danger of becoming inured by the regulars of louche the Blue Box Pod. I'm not even clever enough to work out what that means. <laughs> no, but you fit the bill perfectly, and that's oh, the important thing. He says, uh, or she says, I should say, because it's Nurse Howe, isn't it, who's written this. She says, the chap with the merest hint of a Mancunian accent had my hormones all a-quiver, I can tell you. <laughs> His honeyed tones brought on one of my hot flushes. These boys are wasted just emailing their views on Doctor Who. If only there were some other vehicle for their talents. Best wishes, Nurse Howe, a.k.a. President Romano Greek, Romano Greek Wrestling, a.k.a. Decider Nisox, a.k.a. Security Commander Nylons, a.k.a. Marshall Cheddar Gorge. <laughs> Blimey. <clears throat> yes, no surprises for guessing which email account that email popped in from. Mm, wonder. <clears throat> I should have read that out before we talked about the podcast, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> That'd have been a better impact. Yeah, if only I thought about these things before we actually pressed record. Never mind. The four stories in the trial of a Time Lord. <clears throat> Would you two like to take a guess at which story came last? Because three of them were pretty close. Three of them were very close indeed. And then one of them was lagging behind by quite some distance. Uh, I'd say the ultimate foe probably came last. Yeah, me too. I'm agreeing with Simon on that one. And it did. Yeah. Mm. Do you know, though, I'm astonished by that. Well, I, I didn't vote it last. What about Lee? Did you vote it last? I can't remember. I think I did, actually. Yeah, yeah. So why then, Lee, why do you think... <clears throat> I mean, mm. as an overall view of The Trial of a Time Lord first, mm. was it a successful season? Very uh, briefly, we'll come back to this Briefly? Jeez. Yeah. Okay, um, yes or no, did it work, basically? You can't actually say yes or no. <laughs> there, were, there, were lights, uh, there were shades of grey and all the way through. Uh, okay, did it work overall as a, as a season? If Moffat had done it, it would have done. Um, I think they were aiming high and they possibly didn't quite get it right and there were too many back room problems to make it work perfectly. So I think it kind of failed, really, but it was an interesting experiment. 
Lee, you've been way too kind. They didn't aim very high at all, and even aiming as low as they did, they missed it by a country mile. It was an abject failure. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting to. (laughs) But the ultimate foe... There you go, I've put my cards on the table already, haven't I? But, you know, the point of this podcast is to look for the positive rather than just dwelling on the negative. But, in order to get there, the ultimate foe, you said you think you voted it last... Mm. Why do you think it was the least successful of the four sort of separate bits? I think it, it, the fault of the of the ultimate foe <laughs> was the fact that it had to explain everything that went before it. And I know we know now there was a lot of problems in the script writing department and stuff like that. But I, I believe it was better than it originally was going to be. I just it just didn't f- f- it didn't explain anything. It didn't explain enough. There was too much stuff thrown in and right at the end. It had a little bit of atmosphere. I quite like the Dickensian thing. It's one of my favourite periods, but it it just didn't work for me. I don't remember much of it more than anything else. It didn't really stick in my mind. Even the Matrix parts uh, weren't as strong as they could have been. Um, no, I, I don't know. I think I was... Mm, I think out of four that were okay stories, that one is only just below, I suppose. I, I, I think I wrote in the email that they change every time I think about it. So the ultimate foe was probably three or two about four weeks ago or eight years ago, and then it changed again. But no, I, I voted the low just because I think it was, it was trying to explain too much in just two episodes. I think for me, all four of the stories have got, on the surface of it, quite a lot going for them. And <clears throat> well, I, this is kind of why I wanted to do the Trial of a Time Lord, really, because it just struck me that they've all got great elements, and yet none of them work. None of them put the elements together in a way that makes them feel like a cohesive whole. And it's not just because the trial sort of keeps coming in and out and interrupting the stories. Because I think if you took the trial bits out of the first three stories mm. and just left sort of a sort of maybe a 70 minute edit of what was left. I mean, even in spite of the fact that there are occasionally little bits of story that you wouldn't get in the edit. But I don't think the stories would quite work even then, even without the trial bits. So the stories are already mm. struggling at, at, right at the very start for sort of cohesiveness. And then you throw in all the trial interruptions. And, you know, I can see why the trial interruptions have to be in every episode, especially as they sort of renamed it as one 14-part story instead mm. of the original four parts that it was planned to be. Mm. So, you well, you've got to remind the audience every week that what they're watching is part of this trial, so you have to have the interruptions. But the trouble is, the interruptions disturb the flow of the stories. So, as I say, they were already struggling at the start. You throw in the interruptions, and that just throws them so off whack. Mm. But go on. Yeah, you're right. The first three stories are stilted all the way through because they have to keep stopping the paces all off and, you know, trying to tell the plot is ridiculous over that amount of time. And for people to remember it, you know, the general public, they're never going to get it. So the end two were very complex. But you you said earlier that it was taking elements of good parts of Doctor Who and not really doing a very good job of it. The ultimate foe has got, you know, it's got the deadly assassin and Talon's Wayne Triang. It's got that kind of mixture of two of the best elements of Doctor Who. You know, people love that uh, <coughs> Matrix sequence and the deadly <coughs> assassin. Yet, for some reason, it just didn't work. It was too empty. It's a bit soulless and not quite. Um, it just didn't have the guts, did it? 
it didn't have. I think it didn't have a good is, story. <laughs> well, no, I think the tr- yeah, the trouble is there. It's like when you revisit something, especially after that amount of time, because the thing about doing say, a sequel at the cinema is, if you get all the same people involved and they're making the second one pretty much straight after the first one, they're still riding the wave of the production of the first one. Not the wave of its success, but the wave of its production. So you don't forget how you do things. But if you come... The ultimate foe is, what, a decade nearly? No, a decade exactly after um, trial uh, after The Deadly Assassin. And, of course, Robert Holmes, if he's being asked to revisit something he did ten years earlier, he's not going to remember how he did that thing ten years earlier. So, instead of moving it on, instead of going back into the mindset that he was in and writing something that's like an addition to what he did before, what he's obviously doing is trying to recreate what he did before and remake it rather than you know, add to it, rather than add to what he did with The Matrix. He's just kind of trying to go back to that once fertile ground and redo it. And that's not the way to do things. You know, a sequel shouldn't just be a remake of the original. It should move it on. And, you you know, in order to do that, in order to take something and move it on, you have to still be in the mindset. Mm -hmm. So you have to do it. And so the ultimate foe doesn't work because it's kind of Matrix by numbers. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> it's got a few flavours in there, and it's basically the weak B-side remix, isn't it? That mm. uh, you skip over. It's not. It just hasn't got. I can understand why it's why it's last. The the other three stories seem to have something else about them that people could probably go, oh, do you know, I enjoyed that bit better, and there's a bit, bit more of a co, co- you know, uh, cohesion. Thank you, you've cohesion. got the <coughs> you've got the analogy exactly right. It's like a a weak remix. It's got all the elements and none of the soul. Yeah, exactly. It's like somebody's taken all the bass lines and, you know, they've come out of a computer rather than out of somebody's fingers. It's a shame because there are some good actors in that those last couple of eps as well. Yeah, I quite like it. Out of the four, I think I voted it second because I... And a lot of people have a problem with the second episode which is Pip and Jane Baker trying to wrap it up without any kind of recourse to the scripts that Eric Sayward wrote from Robert Holmes's ideas because of course Robert Holmes never finished them because he fell ill and then of course subsequently died and Eric Sayward walked out on the project and took his scripts with him and um, Pip and Jane Baker weren't allowed to take a look at Eric Sayward's scripts because of all the legal ramifications with Sayward having walked out on the production so Pip and Jane Basic- Baker basically had three days or something stupid like that to write a script that tied up mm. 13 episodes of story, you know, that they'd only just latterly become involved in with the third story of the four. So I think, you know, w- w- when your backs are against the wall like that and you've got all this pressure on you, I think they did a really good job of it. Mm. Which is not to say that it's a really good episode, but it's a hell of a lot better of an episode than it might have been, you know, in the hands of somebody else. It's, um, if you look back on the history of Doctor Who, I can't, I can't name stories, but... It's City of, those... of Death. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't always have to be a negative thing when that happens, does it? It, um, it, it You can end up with a happy accident, and um, it's just unfortunate it didn't really work. I'm with, it... I'm with you, JR, on this, though, cause, because I do think there's a lot to like in it. And really, if I'm honest, it's probably the most interesting of all the stories. 
uh, potentially the elements that are there potentially it could have been uh, and it's funny when you initially said Lee about the fact if Stephen Moffat had done it it would have been brilliant and I thought uh, I don't know I don't know I don't know but when you think about well it, you've got to point out the fact that the people's reaction to the time of the doctor yeah which I guess is Stephen Moffat's <laughs> the ultimate foe the people's reaction to it has been pretty similar really it, hasn't it but it's almost like um uh wedding of river song in as <clears> much as it is it it's mad it is it's not mad enough in some respects yeah, is no, it? it's, it's really it's really tethered um i imagine by financial constraints as much as anything else and possibly a bit well, it of goes back to what we were saying just now about the remix rather than you know writing a new song is when the deadly assassin was on you know that whole third episode you couldn't predict what was going to happen next and yet in the ultimate foe you just kind of know what's going to happen next because yeah. you know it's already been done if in a way, it's like Russell T. Davis' first and second series. The first one with Christopher Eccleston. Every week, I didn't know what it was going to be like. Every episode, I didn't know what, you know, the next five minutes was going to be like. The whole thing was so unpredictable. I loved the unpredictability of it. Especially Aliens of London. Your first time you watch that, <laughs> you have no idea what the whole pig thing is going to be about. And, yeah. and the twist at the end of the episode, when it turns out the aliens have gathered together all the experts so that they can get rid of them, that was a brilliant twist. There's nothing like that in the second series. And this kind of feels like that. It feels like they kind of redo without the surprises. Mm. Yeah, a quick one on the old space pig. That was an amazing moment for me. <laughs> I loved that scene so much. Um... Yeah, the the ironic thing is that these two episodes are the only ones... I know they are set in the Matrix, but it's quite linear. There's nothing going on, there's no messing around with it, uh, like the other trial stories. So even though this is probably the the more solid linear plotting in the story from start to finish, it feels the weakest and the loosest and uh, you know uh. but you're right about the Pip and Jane they only had a few days to put it together so hats off to them for actually getting it done otherwise we'd have ended up with um, well what exactly you know the trial of a time lord would have worked so much better <clears throat> if those first three stories had been written completely standalone and then the two part trial mm. story at the end had been the whole of the trial, just two episodes of trial. Rather than put the trial all the way through all four stories, just have the trial as two episodes. How, how good would it have been if they did a cold Lazarus on it? <laughs> you know, so uh, anybody who knows that it's story, it's, it's Dennis Potter. Yeah, Dennis uh, Potter. Yeah, and yeah. you get, it's karaoke, isn't it, the story first, and it's just like this guy's life and everything. But there are strange things going on, and you can't work out what it is. And it's only until you get to the second part that you realise it's his memories, and they're all a bit twisted and strange. And that would have been great for the trial of a time, but definitely not 14 episodes. No, and actually, if you look at what um, Chris Chibnall just did with The Great Train Robbery, you know, two episodes. One tells the story from the perspective of the robbers and the other one from the perspective of the cops. Oh, right. Not seen it. Does it work? No, well, well, yes, but uh, I mean, the thing with Trial of a Time Lord is you could have those first three stories and they could stand alone and not have any trial stuff in them. And then when you get to episode 13, you suddenly realise that the reason you've been watching those three stories is because they've been watching them as part of this trial. So episode 13, they can refer back to the events of the first three stories without having intruded upon those stories in the first place. It would have been um, lovely and far more poetic for the whole thing not to have been called Trial of the Time Lord and, like you say, behaving like a normal series, but at the end realising the whole 
thing is the doctor being on trot and that was mm. and that that is the surprise in itself and then everyone goes, oh, yeah, because the series is on trial as well. Instead of making a big thing, you yeah. said before how it was a big mistake to make the trial so obvious that here is a TV series in crisis. Mm. And let's make the program about the program being in crisis. Yeah, it's like it, telling the public you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. F- and it's like self, begging. Self-fulfilling. Yeah. yeah. So, it's like begging. It's like saying to the public, please like us. And, uh, you know, if this had been the days of the X Factor, you know, all four of those stories would have been voted off, wouldn't they? Do you know they? what? This, this reminds me, though, of, um, with, without going off, well, no, I will go off Doctor Who, going back to Red Dwarf. Now, did you ever see the episode, was it Back to, back to Reality? Yeah. Which was brilliant, but my memory tells me that it appeared at the end of a series. So you, you had a whole series, and then this episode happened where all of a sudden you think for the first half of the episode that the whole thing's been a big uh alter um sorry yeah yeah it's it's been all been happening in their heads and it's all been a game it's all been an immersive game and for the first half of the episode you were completely like oh my god is this where the series is going they're not actually the people we thought they were but that's my memory's done that because as far as i'm aware that episode begins is at the beginning of the series which i think is a bad bad move but they could have done the same thing with this you could have had a normal series where slightly odd things are happening the doctor's behaving slightly weird and 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 making very odd choices and then at the end yeah you 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 completely flip it on its head and you've got to reanalyze the whole thing in your head and um yeah they missed a trick yeah you could just have a few in plug ports in his head and they're extracting matrix memories from him and he's he's trapped yeah i mean uh, maybe we've watched too much moffat because we seem to be <laughs> You know, having these brilliant kind of twisted ideas. And uh, and what we're really saying is the trial of the, the Time planet. Lord is more like Bobby in the shower waking up after a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and what a waste of the Valyard. I mean, I can't even remember what happens to him at the end. Are we allowed to say? Is it spoilers? Yeah, no, for no, he, t- he, he survives. <laughs> the great thing about that whole 14 episodes is that, you know, you get to work out who he is and then you see him, I think you see him cop it, and then for some reason, right at the end, he turns around and gives a bit of a... He does uh, a master, doesn't he? He does a master and does an evil grin. But part of me thinks that that is the Valyard that actually, you know, it, it's it's like a, a timey-wimey thing. So he has just been created and then he's going to go back and do the trial. <laughs> That's how I like to see it anyway. You, oh, no. <laughs> no. I think you're pushing it a bit there. <laughs> I know. He, um, he does a... Like at the end of Keeper of Trark, and he does a he steals James Bree's body, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah. Aye, mm. you know, uh, the ultimate foe. Like I say, I voted it second, and of the four stories here, I find it one of the easier ones to watch. And it was called the Ultimate Foe, um, which kind of threw me as a as a kid. I was thinking, what does that mean? Because you had the master in there, you had the Valyard, and you know you had the Doctor being a bit screwy as well. well Obviously, we work out what it is, but I found it that uh, it was quite a good title actually. But I, I was quite confused at the time. I, well, I mean, maybe it should be even weren't. more confusing when I tell you the next thing. Well, obviously, if you're going to read it, you have to say the Valyard, being the Doctor's evil yeah. alter ego, is the ultimate foe because the ultimate foe is oneself. <sighs> But the fact is, the ultimate foe was originally the name of Terror of the Vervoids. Oh, that's right. It was. You, yeah. That makes it and, more shallow. <laughs> yeah. And those last two episodes were going to be called... Was it Time Inc.? 
I think it was Time it Incorporated. A, yeah, I love that title. I thought it was great. I know. Yeah. Let's face it. The, those four stories. I mean, I know they weren't officially named those four names initially, were they? It was just one big thing. Big thing no, 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 Simon. Wrong way round. They were called. They did have names, and the decision was taken late in the day just to make it Trial of a Time Lord oh. Parts One to Fourteen. But I think, and that's when they lost the names. But the well, names they had originally were the Mysterious Planet, yeah. Mind Warp, the Ultimate Foe, and Time Incorporated. Mm-hmm. And the Ultimate Foe became Terror of the Vervoids, and then Time Inc. became the Ultimate Foe. Don't ask me how that happened. Yeah. It... Hmm. See, that just the, the change of the name could have had a different bearing on how the story formed in a funny way. I don't... Or, or maybe how it formed in people's heads. Maybe people's attitude towards it would have been different. It doesn't stop the fact that it's poorly, <coughs> poorly put together anyway. I think people's attitude towards the Trial of a Time Lord would be considerably different if it wasn't just the Trial of a Time Lord. Parts 1 to 14, I think that in itself presents a barrier, not just to the way you watch it, but also the way you think about it. Yeah, They are four of the worst titles for stories, if I'm honest. For the really Mysterious Planet and so Mysterious on. Planet is, yeah... That's a B-movie okay. right there. It's a B-movie. Yeah, they're okay. I quite like that. <laughs> yeah. I think, they're, I think they're a slight improvement on the previous year's stories. Revelation of the Daleks, for example. It's just, oh, we did uh, Genesis of the Daleks and Destiny of the Daleks and Resurrection of the Daleks. How do we carry that on? And then they decide to go with the R and try and keep the religious theme with the R. It's like... Repetition you of the know, Daleks. Yeah, it it really is. It's like you're really stretching at this point. Yeah, I mean, the, any kind of a revelation that comes in Revelation of the Daleks doesn't have anything to do with the Daleks themselves whatsoever. No, you're right. It's Revelation of the Davros, isn't it? It is. It is. It's just... So, actually, I think these titles... I mean, Mind Warp is pretty neither here nor there, but the Mysterious Planet's okay. And Terror of the Vervoids is one of those does what it says on the tin things but time inc would have been so good for the last two episodes yeah it would have been actually definitely it would have broken that would have been a break with tradition completely wouldn't it it's, it's far more modern title it's, it's fa- something far more post 2005 isn't it yeah but you know the series does that every now and again yes it does feel more like what we have now for sure but you know uh, Every now and again, you know, these things change sort of organically. But in order to change organically, you also have to have moments where the change feels imposed. It's like if you're looking back over the whole 26 years of the classic series, you don't notice the changes. But if you're living through the classic series, you notice the changes as they come up. Because if you look back on the whole thing as an archive you don't necessarily pocket the different bits of the archive into the sort of envelopes that they were in at the time. If you look at, say, for instance, Inferno, when that was on, I don't think anybody would think of Inferno as being an unusual Doctor Who title now. But, you know, for seven years previous, Doctor Who had been doing the X of Y B-movie titles and then just have a one-word title like Inferno at the time... If people had been thinking about it, it would have been quite a shock to the system. And then, of course, now it just feels natural. Yeah, it should have been Attack of the Primords or something. Right? Well, yeah, or, um, <laughs> you know, Journey to the Centre of the Earth. <laughs> well, except, of course, it wasn't. But do you know what I mean? They would have taken a title like that. Yeah. Anyway, um, we did have 
you know, a few people left comments on uh, Facebook when we were doing this. So I shall... Well, we've got five. Ian Martin, let's read out what Ian Martin had to say about his stories because he actually voted The Ultimate Foe as his favourite. He says, ah, now, this is my era. The Ultimate Foe, what you have to understand is that I was 10 when this aired and the revelation about the Veilyard's identity was the most important thing that had ever happened. <laughs> the arrival of the Master was just so exciting too. Great cliffhanger in the sand. Okay, it doesn't all make perfect sense, but it's fine in the context of New Who, and there's no escaping Bonnie Langford, but this really is big epic stuff. That the Valyard, Valyard, never... It's Valyard, isn't it? Mm, yeah. I always say Valyard, I don't know why. You sounded like you said Failyard. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, maybe I'm doing a Colin Baker on it, a sixth doctor. <laughs> that the Valyard never returned is heartbreaking. Interestingly, if he is composed of the Doctor's dark side between the Doctor's 12th and 13th regeneration, that's the period between Journey's End and the End of Time. So, the Time Lord Victorious. Uh, then Ian Martin's second story. He says, mind warp, I suppose. Hard to love, but it was daring in its way. In third place, he has the mysterious planet. If only the set lighting had been more favourable in the underground scenes. Some good ideas and a lot to like. And then in fourth place, finally, Terror of the Vervoids. Now, the story was good, the cliffhangers were great, the ship and the Vervoids looked okay, but the costumes of the Commodore and Dolland, oh god. <laughs> Money runners out us. Langford's debut was not pretty, but Colin Baker has really hit his stride as the latest layer in his increasingly palatable onion of a doctor. God, I used to love Trial, he says. Fair enough. He was a kid. I, yeah, well, I think he comes up with some good points there as well, and we'll probably come back to some of those as we carry on talking. I, I do have fond memories of the series. It was the first series I was able to record on VHS. Oh, really? I'd done it for a few years before that. I don't think I did... Well, we'll talk about that in a second. One more email and we'll move on to the next story. Um, this is a very short one, that's why. It's from Grant Nock. He said, good Lord, this is difficult. It's like trying to pick your favourite toothache. <laughs> okay, the story the story that came third, that was just slightly behind the other two, the, the top two pretty much drew. There's uh, like one point between them. But the story that came third... Well, would you like to try and guess on that one? I I would be surprised. Yeah, I don't know. Should we? Su what do you reckon? I reckon mind warp. You reckon mind warp? I think it might be a surprising one. It might be Terror of the Vervoids. No, it's mind warp. Oh, <laughs> so good. That's all right. <laughs> I got to confess, this is the story I voted bottom. Fair enough. And going back to what you said just now about being a kid when it was on and so you know as a kid you lap this stuff up right so you know especially if you're a kid who's getting into or has been into doctor who something that's a bit more wraparound like the trial story it's probably just about the right level of involvement uh, you know if you're a certain age so in that respect it almost does the job it's just a shame that you've still got eric saywood's storytelling there that's trying to be for grown-ups so you know again a lack of cohesion between intent and realization almost but mind warp you know here's my confession i don't think i've ever sat down and been able to watch mind warp from start to finish i couldn't at the time you know i think i've said it before on this podcast 
Trial of a Time Lord was where I zoned out of Doctor Who completely, and it was only really Terror of the Vervoids that got me back in. So I'm, I, I'd zoned out at the time, and ever since then, every time I've put Mind Warp on, I've always nodded off or had to turn it off and go and do something else. It's your sensorites, isn't it? It's your sensorites. It is. I just can't. I just can't do all four episodes in a go. I just can't. Mad, isn't it? Well, nothing really goes on, does it? I mean, there's a tiny bit, of, minuscule bit of a plot about arms deals and trying to get a brain in somebody's head, and that's really it. Because it's just a, f- it's just for the trial sequences to be. You know, mm. uh, that that's the point in the whole story, isn't it? That we realise that the f- the um, evidence is being falsified by the Valyard um, through the Doctor's eyes anyway. Uh, so that, yeah, that, yeah. That, that adds a bit of tension to the whole series. That's quite good. I like that. But, you know, when you're trying to tell a story at the same time, it's... It, mm, no. You've got a lot of good actors and a lot of... I was going to say, yeah. there's a lot of really great personalities in there. Well, you've got Not Patrick Reichardt's. I mean, he's a brilliant actor. And, of course, Nabil Shaban comes back in and yeah. does Sill. And I mean, in spite of the fact that I didn't like Vengeance on Varos, there's no arguing with um, Nabil Shaban as Sill. Mike from the Young brilliant. Ones. Brilliant. Pardon? Mike from the Young Ones. Yeah, absolutely. Christopher Ryan's in there as well. And Brian Blessed. Brian Blessed is brilliant. Yeah, he's you can't... really good. <laughs> so he's got some great actors. But this kind of goes back to my point again about the lack of cohesion because Patrick Reichardt is one kind of an actor and Brian Blessed is a different kind of an actor. And, you know, in between you've got Nabil Shaban who's, you know, something else again. It's like a decent director casts a story so that the cast's performances are all sympathetic to one another. But Mind Warp, one of the things, because Mind Warp tries to be a really dark, really grown-up story, which is, you know, I don't think it's a Doctor Who story for a start. I don't know what business it has being in Doctor Who. It just feels wrong for a start. But then when you... Sorry, just quickly. It feels feels like like Blake Blake 7. Yeah, it does. But then when you, you know, add in the notion of having people like Patrick Riker and Brian Blessed playing opposite one another, it's like when you go off and have the scenes with Brian Blessed, it feels like one story. Then when you come back and have the scenes with Patrick Riker, it feels like another story. And then when you go off and have the scenes with Christopher Ryan and Nabil Shaban, it feels like another story entirely. It's like every time the scene changes from one scene to another, it feels like you're in a different production. Yeah, it does. And Actually, all of those could have been squished and moulded together into literally one episode and you'd have got what was going on from start to finish. That's all you needed, wasn't it? <laughs> one episode, not four. Um, yeah, it really doesn't have a lot of plot. It's really nasty as well. I remember just well, finding yeah. a very upsetting story. Say word. For, yeah, yeah. It, upsetting and for not just say reasons. word. Because that it's... character, who's, who's the mutant guy who attacks Perry and then gets yeah, yeah. injured... Whoever's playing that is just brilliant, and the makeup is brilliant as well. That's really effective. Um, oh, the Lucosa is called, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and then what happens to Perry, I found quite upsetting as a child, because I really did quite like her. And I just yes. thought, oh, you can't do that, you can't do that to her. And there was no light with the shade. And I no, think Doctor no. Who does need light with shade. As it can go as dark as it likes, as long as there's the bright light in the middle. And even the Doctor was undermining that story. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a Philip Martin, isn't it? And Philip Martin mm. was famous, of course, for having written gangsters at this point. 
And Gangsters, I don't know if you've either of you have seen Gangsters, but it starts off as a fairly normal sort of story about kind of a British mafia sort of outfit. And then in the second series, it kind of goes really metatextual and gets very gets very weird. And Philip Martin, obviously, one of the reasons why Eric Saywood wanted him is because he fancied a bit of this weirdness coming into Doctor Who. So he kind of brings him in. And, you know, the first one is Vengeance on Varos, which has got that whole Greek chorus thing of it being about, <laughs> you know, we, the audience, watching an audience, watching the events unfold on their TVs. Mm. It's got kind of like those dual layers of meaning which is why they tried to get away with what they did in Vengeance of Varos, and we've spoken about that before. Mm. Mind Warp, again, you've kind of got the same feel going on. The trial yeah. is affecting the events as we see them, so we don't know if we can accept the events that we're watching for being real. And like the two of you, I think it was Simon, was saying just now, it doesn't add up, it doesn't make any sense. It gives it an excuse um, to be more nasty as well, doesn't it? Because obviously well, yeah. Perry dies in the episode. We know she doesn't by the end of it. It's almost tacked on, isn't it? But um, yeah, and uh, it, it it felt really nasty. So if you're watching it as a kid, you're probably thinking, what? What's happened to Perry? That's a really nasty ending. But I've got to say, um, she did. Um, Nicola Bryant did a nice bit of acting at the end there. Um, convinced it feels me. like... It feels like Eric Sayward and Philip Martin are two adolescent schoolboys in the corner of the classroom thinking up what weird shit they can get on the screen and excuse it by saying, oh, it's just things are a bit weird because of the trial. You know, like yeah. Vengeance on Varos felt like how far we can go, but we say it's okay because we're making a comment upon the violence. It's like two, you know, two schoolboys poking a frog and dissecting it because they, they can because it's a lesson. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like reveling in the nastiness just a bit too much. Exactly. And there's no place for it in Doctor Who. It just, you know, as the other thing about Mind Warp is, I, you know, I said it just now, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit well with me. No, a nice alien planet entry, though. Was it a pink sky, yeah. wasn't it? That's quite good. It was filmed nicely. Uh, yeah. And even the once you get indoors and underground, it's lit nicely as well. It's mm. one of the few, you know, everybody yeah. complains about the lighting in the 1980s, but mm. you can't argue with the lighting in Mind Warp. It's lit no. very nicely. Very good. And I like to think that uh, some of the um, the stuff that Brian Blessed was doing as Yukanos, he he uh, drew from when he finally did his uh, the peak of his career doing Boss Nass in Phantom Menace. <laughs> God. I'm moving swiftly along. <laughs> but there are some great performances. And actually, even though I can't sit through it, every time I do put it on, I always think to myself, you know, this isn't as bad as I think it is. No, and I, that's about as far as my thinking I gets. Ad I adore Sil. We've said it already. But, I mean, you, know, you could have just had 25 minutes of him doing a monologue at the screen. I'd, I'd have enjoyed that <laughs> a lot more. I think. You know, I don't even know what he and Christopher Ryan are doing in that story. It's no, not I'm a story not sure. about them. They don't really appear. They seem to be in it just for the sake of having the actor back. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, he worked really well. He was really popular. Let's put him in another story. With a migraine. Hmm. I know that's Christopher Ryan with a migraine, oh, isn't yeah, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. And, of course, yes, ultimately it turns out to be about them trying to find a new body for 
you know, the experiments and everything. But do you know what I mean? This is another example of the cohesiveness. They just, it just, they feel like they're in the wrong story. I don't, it's almost the, um, the mind swap thing <coughs> going into Perry's body. It's almost <coughs> a little perverse, isn't it? <coughs> in a, yeah, is well. It, is it just yeah. me or is it? It is. What would be the first thing you would do if you were in a woman? Well, they're aliens, Simon? aren't they? <laughs> What would you do if you were right? Really, moving body? swiftly, oh, swiftly oh, 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 along. Oh, sorry, <laughs> marshmallows. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and that officially is the lowest depth this podcast has gone to. Don't dwell on it. No. Tristan Alfaro says of the trial season as a whole, it starts out well, and I love the interaction between the Doctor and Perry at the start. Oh yeah. Things start going downhill rapidly. Mindwalk really shows the fact that there's very poor communication within the production department. Mm. The behind-the-scenes turmoils really destroyed the potential that the series had, but it was a flawed concept from the beginning. Colin Baker deserved so much better. And I can't really disagree with a word of that. No, hear, hear. Um, so the the story that came second, well, it's between the mysterious planet and Terror of the Vervoids, isn't it? What do you think came second? What do you think didn't win? I think mysterious planet came second. Nope, I think the other way. And Simon's right, actually. This was really weird. Wow, three out of three, four, yeah. out, of, four out of four. <laughs> well, there's only a point between them. But at one point, till the very last vote came in, they'd drawn, and I was going to do it, on which one of them had more first-place votes, mm. thinking it was probably going to be quite close. But it wasn't remotely close. Mysterious Planet had a lot of first-places and a lot of last-places, and Terror of the Vervoids just had a lot of second- and third-places, and that's how it made the points up. So actually, Mysterious Planet was a lot more people's first choice for the season than Terror of the Vervoids was. Yeah, I but anyway, I believe I was confused between the two. I couldn't choose, so I don't know which one was first in the end. I wrote down. Well, anyway, is your terminal status, isn't it? Y- yes. Oh, did, Terror, I just, did I just talk? Terror of the Vervoids, fellas. Yeah. Which I think is easily the most coherent story of the entire season. It blatantly is the most coherent. It's like a normal Doctor Who story, isn't it? And it's yeah. Agatha Christie in space. It's a remake of Robots of Death in a kind of weird way. But, um... but I don't even just mean the fact that it's fairly traditional and fairly straightforward. Mm. I just mean, you know, it seems to be my theme for this podcast is elements not knitting together well. Mm. Terror of the Vervoids is the only story that doesn't have elements that seem like they've been shuffled in from you know, shuttled in from a different story. It's the only one of the four stories where all the elements seem to be working together towards a common goal. Yeah, it does. It does feel um, like a normal... You could read that story from start to finish in a book and it would be like a little little mystery, which was uh, which was fine. Did it have a lot of trial interruption? I can't remember. It did, same as all the others. They had to do the trial interruptions. You know, you've got to let the sort of casual viewer at home know that it's part of this whole trial sequence. So, yeah, they're all throughout every every episode. But, it, but, but that, you know, that scuppers the story again, though, doesn't it? Because it does. the Doctor's the one dipping into his future to defend himself. And you think, well, surely he'd pick something that he had experienced? <clears throat> but anyway. No, he didn't pick this, did he? I thought he did. I thought he picked it for his defence. Oh, did he? Yes, he picked it for his defence. Sorry, turned but it he... around on him. Well, yeah, why would he pick something that's not happened yet? 
Yeah, he picks something that's not happened yet and he commits genocide. Clever. Of course, he's committed genocide before. It's odd that they make such a big thing of it in this, except for the fact that, of course, Pip and Jane Baker wouldn't know the history of the series, so wouldn't have known about previous occasions where he's wiped out whole species. So it becomes much more of a big thing here than it really should be. But going back to my point about it feeling coherent, it's the one story by writers that don't seem to feel they've got something to prove, in a way. So it's just it's just a couple of, you know, people are going to hate me for saying this, it's just a couple of fairly decent writers writing a fairly decent story. And it wins, in my view, it wins best story of the season by default, by being the least offensive. <laughs> well, you know, Drew, you know, I can't... I, I think you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you definitely on that. And the irony of that is it's first appearance of Bonnie Langford. Yeah, I don't think she's remotely bad. I think her performance is pitched too theatrically, but I don't think that's necessarily her fault. Going I think the to, director. Going back to how you experience it as a child, though, I, I when I heard she was going to be in the series, obviously I was horrified. Still, yeah, everybody was. Um, and I think what grated even more is the fact that they dipped into the future, so we didn't see her introduced. So she was already behaving like she belonged there, and that was even more grating. And they didn't, you know, they didn't do anything to dispel the notion that she was going to be Violet Elizabeth Bott in the TARDIS. You know, quite a lot of what you get when you get Bonnie Langford in The Trial of a Time Lord is just exactly what you would have expected have, having heard that she was going to be in Trial of a Time Lord. Exactly. You're right about the director not telling her to keep it down when you do theater obviously you've got to make it all large and she just was large and she needed to be mm. a little bit small. Uh, but she's she's done that since and she recognizes that that period was um wasn't the way that she should have played it i think because she's been on the big finish all years and done a brilliant job been good on yeah that. and i think she gets much better by the time of delta and the bannerman and dragonfire as well i think she's actually rather good in those two stories mm. i just think it's a shame it took them that long to sort that problem out and, of course, by which time it was too late. Yeah, it would have been nice to see an entrance story before her, definitely. There was a lot of that going on, though. Let's face it, through the Colin Baker season, a lot of the things that shouldn't have been happening were ironed out far too late, too far too, yeah. far down the line. Yeah. yeah, well, obviously, Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant's performances throughout season 22 are the best evidence of all for that. Because mm. they're so much better once you get to the trial of a Time Lord. And if it had been like that from Attack of the Cybermen, uh, you know, it, uh, and you know, there are flashes of this all through season twenty-two. But then there are flashes of the tri the twin dilemma all through season twenty-two, and season twenty-three is like too little, too late. It is definitely. But in terms of vervoids, it had a, a a half-decent murder mystery story, all a bit obvious given that it's mm. the Doctor Who universe, mm. and it was, it was one of those stories that, had it been produced in the early or mid-70s, would have been given a really classy production, mm. would have perhaps been given a bit of a makeover on the script by Terence Dix or Robert Holmes or whoever was script editor at the time to make the dialogue a bit more Doctor Who-y, for want of a better expression. But it's one of those stories where little things seem to happen just off-centre 
just to keep the story ticking along, that feel really classic Doctor Who. Do you know, like in the Silurians when the disease breaks out, just to oh, fill yeah. an extra episode, and you've got yeah. yeah, and you've got this little nugget of an adventure inside the adventure mm. of. And then at the end of Robots of Death Part 2, where the sand miner goes out of control and everybody thinks it's going to bury itself. And in Terror of the Vervoids, you've got the bit where you think they're going to plunge into the black hole. And all this kind of stuff, it feels like classic Doctor Who. Yeah, it does. It just doesn't quite have that depth. No. And And some of the sequences, the cliffhanger, the first cliffhanger. The cliffhanger's good. One of the best cliffhangers ever. Yeah, really good. And some of that stuff is really nicely shot as well. And the vervoids themselves, uh, you know, I don't know what people think about it. I thought they're brilliant design. I loved. I know they look like what the what they look like, but uh, well, you didn't pick up on that when you were a kid, no, did you? No, you didn't. No, not until people started posting them on the internet with Alpha Centauri falling inside them and stuff. But anyway, um, the uh, what was I going to say? The actual, uh, yeah, no, I was. I tell you, what I was going to say uh, the eighties, right? Uh, Mel, Mel Bush, uh, fitness fanatic, a terrible idea, Green Goddess, and all that. And uh, part of it's set in a gym, isn't it? If I remember right, with some. It is, music. yeah, yeah. You know, if that was set in, I don't know, Hinchcliffe times, that'd have been a library on a cruiser, wouldn't it? And uh, stuff like that. It'd have been a bit more classy, <laughs> but they had to stick it in a gym. Just, I know. Oh, but... I hate that bit so much. <laughs> it kind of works though, because it's. It works for the time. It's eighty. Yeah, it kind of works. It's. You sort of have to just say, okay, fair enough for things like that. I've been on a cruise. There are gyms like that. Mm. <laughs> um, should we get another quick message from... Well, we've got one from Sookie Kark. Hey. Uh, hello, Sookie. He says... Oh, he's, his story's in order. Top story. Mind warp because the ending stayed in my thoughts until I was until it was retconned six weeks later. And then second, Terror of the Vervoids, because of an old-fashioned mystery story, and I remember a lot more from this one than from the other three. The Mysterious Planet third, because of the Star Wars Death Star opening and Glitz and Dibber. And finally, The Ultimate Foe, because somebody has to be bottom in a pole, and unfortunately, it's this segment of the epic. Overall, The Trial of a Time Lord is a misjudged series. It has some very good moments, the opening special effect, Perry's final scenes, the first cliffhanger in the Vervoids story, but because of the connecting trial running through each story, it would break up the narrative and your attention would sometimes wander. Each story would have been a lot better, therefore, without a trial scene appearing every few minutes. But like I say, you know, that was... Once you'd made the decision to do the trial story, you had to have trial in every episode because that's, you know, how you kind of needed to tell the story for the audience at home, sadly. So the story that came first... Yeah, you know the mysterious planet the opening mm. four episodes and to stay you know I might as well get this out of the way now to stay with my theme for this episode of it being elements in search of a unifying aspect or whatever you know you've got the two guys and the robot in the underground you've got glitz and dimmer and then you've got the village with um, oh what's her name the actress from the carry on films yeah, Joan Sim. And again, it's like it's just like Mind Warp. All those elements feel like they're in a different production from one another. And it's written by Robert Holmes. And Robert Holmes usually does a really good job of marrying all this stuff up. If you look at Carnival of Monsters, for example, that's a brilliant example of Robert Holmes taking a load of stuff that really shouldn't fit and making it fit. 
and a mysterious planet. It's not a million miles away from the power of Kroll, and it's not a million miles away from the caves of Androzani. And, you know, even power of Kroll works when stood next to the mysterious planet. Something about the mysterious planet, all those elements just don't sit with one another. Yeah, I mean, what... I don't know why... Well, I do know why it's number one. I suppose there's some things in it that are just really, really great. Like, but it's still a Robert Holmes script. It's a Robert Holmes script. You've got Sablon and Glitz, Sablon, Glitz uh, and Diver, um, which are fantastic characters anyway. I love them. And uh, there is this kind of like J.G. Ballard, John Wyndham thing, tripods thing going on, which really appealed to me personally. So I liked that idea of like future the future Earth being tribal again and all that sort of stuff. So it kind of worked for me. Kind of reminds you a little bit of the Sontaran experiment as well. Yeah, and actually there was a mystery because you weren't sure whether it really was Earth to begin with. No. Um, uh, So, yeah, I mean, but you're right, there's kind of disparate elements that don't quite work. Um, The first episode's, I was going to say great. It's not great. The first episode's passable. You know, it sounds like I'm really ragging on this now. And I don't mean to... Mysterious Planet's kind of enjoyable because it's always got the Robert Holmes dialogue. And, you know, it's got Duggan in there, for crying out loud. It's fun. It's a bit of fun. Yeah. But once you get past the first episode and you're sort of spending a lot more time indoors in the underground, it just all feels a bit perfunctory. Yes, it does. I suppose it does. Moby Dick made a nice, uh, you know, that was nice to mm. see that book somewhere in Doctor Who. Um, we're, we're ignoring, or we'll probably get to it in a minute, the opening sequence, which cost eight yeah. grand. A thousand quid it cost to do that sequence, and it was it was ex- outstanding. And I thought the music, when, when it, the music kicked in, to me, when I watched it, because we all knew it was on trial and, you know, come out the hi- hiatus, and I was sitting there watching it thinking, oh, please be good. And I thought, oh, like everybody else, every Doctor Who fan was looking at that going, this is ama- this is Star Wars, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and you've got this Murray Gold music, it's like Murray Gold's music, it's a gorgeous piece of music, I've got it on a tape somewhere. And you sit there and you go, Whoa, and then it, then he materialises in a corridor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it is like a really appalling corridor <laughs> as well. And it is. And then you go into the trial room where you've got... Um, yeah, it's just like a really small set for somewhere <laughs> that's supposed to be really big and imposing. It's terrible. Yeah, and then the Oxo woman walks in. You think, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> she was quite good, though. Yeah, she's okay, but, I mean, that's kind of the trouble is that you knew her from the... Oxo, so you kind of it's difficult to suspend disbelief. Uh, yeah, it certainly was. <laughs> and what happened with um, Colin Baker's hair? Because he seemed to get the uh, John Pertwee syndrome, didn't he? Where Pertwee had quite good hair when he started, you know, kind of quite cool. Same with Colin Baker, really. It was. It's all know, gone really beautiful here, hasn't when, it? Yeah, he just looked like a, a match, matchstick. Yeah, he should have had his hair cut. Yeah. Curly and blonde and long. They're three elements that don't best go together. <laughs> I'm sure they've bleached it as well because it looks way too blonde in the trial of the time. I remember when Jonathan Turner was trying, trying to get him to, you know, have as big a afro as he had or whatever it was that he had on his head. <laughs> oh, he was way worse than John Nathan Turner though, wasn't he? Oh, man. We've not heard from Simon for a bit. What did Simon think of the mysterious planet? Um... Well, I, I voted it first place. 
and I couldn't honestly tell you why. I think it's because it seemed to me the most well-rounded of the stories. I know you said about the disparate things. Uh, I think it's the best work. idea for a story. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's what it was. There was something at the heart of it that, that made me think it's probably the most... I mean, it's Planet of the Apes, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. It's just a lot of good elements, and, it, and it's... Uh, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's the nearest thing to classy out of the whole series, I think. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Wasn't the robot a bit camp in that one? Yeah, he is. In fact, the whole underground thing he is looked, camp. That sort of. I don't know why, but he made me think of the robot in... There was a, a computer game on the Spectrum called Alien 8, and for some reason he always reminded me of him. <laughs> right. And then, of course, you've got... Oh, the two guys... Uh, what are they called? The two guys... Or the... Guy who's looking after the robot, not the one played by Duggan, but um, the other oh, fella. Oh, it's yeah. all a bit, it's all a bit fey and. Yeah, I mean it's the, it's written quite <coughs> comedic, but it's not really played very well. And when in Carnival of Monsters or you know other Robert Holmes stories, you can kind of suspend your disbelief for things that, if you sort of sat down and think about them. They're completely, completely not realistic at all. But you can kind of suspend disbelief for them because because Robert Holmes usually, usually world builds really well and makes you believe. But uh, somewhere between the script and maybe the direction and maybe just the idea of rooting it in the trial and everything else, I find it really hard to suspend my disbelief for The Mysterious Planet. I find it really hard to think that any of these people could conceivably actually be doing what they're doing. Do you know what I mean? Mm, mm, absolutely. Don't but the, nice ideas. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and as I say, that's probably why I picked it first. Don't the um, Blake 7 helmets make another appearance? Yeah, I think so. The Earthshot ones. Mm, yeah. Yet again. Yes. Mm. You big nerd. Is that going to be our last word on the mysterious planet then? Well, it's got the Blake Seven helmets. Hasn't it? it has. Well, let's face it. We keep saying it over and over again. The, the the trial disrupts every story apart from the last one, which is disrupted through no fault of its own. Yeah. Um, so the whole series, we don't. I know we don't like saying it on this podcast, but the whole series is flawed for that very reason. That. One it is idea a failure is, from start to finish. I think it's corrupted the whole integrity of the season. Seriously, I think it is easily. I and I, you know my least favourite season of Doctor Who is season twenty-two, but season twenty-three is, to my mind, easily the worst season of Doctor Who. Wow! You know, and those mm. two are yeah. bad by quite some distance beyond the rest of them as well. You know, there are other bits and pieces that are problematic, but, you know, much as I like to like all of Doctor Who, I find there's very little in either of those two seasons that I can really find to enjoy. Well, uh, go on. I was going to say, what about the acting, Joe? I mean, you know, yeah, there's acting and, you know, a script by Robert Holmes. I can put the two Doctors on and I can sort of, Pleasantly while away the two Doctors, but that's about the only story in season 22. In spite of the fact that I think Mark of the Run is a better story, you know, that I can... I, I just wouldn't... I wouldn't choose to put any of these ten stories on for pleasure. No. No, I was thinking about showing them to my son, 
the other day and I thought, no, no, he's got to watch Genesis of the Daleks first. <laughs> I yeah. I can't talk to Well, that's it. This. In a nutshell, why would you put on, you know, even though it's one in the poll for this season, why would you put on the mysterious planet when you could put on Planet of Evil, let alone Genesis of the Daleks? Mm, mm. And yeah, I'd happily, and, you know, Simon, you wouldn't agree to this, but I'll happily put on a, a Sylvester McCoy, any one of the Sylvester McCoy stories for pleasure, because I do find a lot of things, to a lot of pleasure to get out of those 12 stories. But I just can't really find it in, you know, the Colin Baker stories as a whole, really. I think, I think with the, the McCoy as opposed to these, no, I, I, I can get what somebody can enjoy at the McCoys because they are, they are trying something different. And there is substance to the stories, and I appreciate that. I just feel that style-wise, and as far as the production values, well, it's only it's, production values. It is, it, it is, <clears throat> it is. And maybe I'm too sensitive to that, but I feel like it's kind of gone over the crest of the wave, and it's on the way down for the McCoy time. Um, but it really started here. If yeah. you look oh, at no, it, oh no, I know, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is. There are some moments of beautiful production value in these stories. Some of the new paint box special effects they bring in in Mind Warp. You know, the opening sequence in The Mysterious Planet. And the sort of scenes in the cages with the plants in Terror of the Vervoids. Do you know what? But then, uh, yeah. for every time you get a nice bit like that, then you go indoors and it's all tits up. Do you know what? Um, to relate to the dum de dum guys. diddly dum. diddly dum. Sorry. Mm. Oh, dear. It goes dum de dum de dum de dum in my head, diddly dum. Okay, um, they were they were talking. Was it actually on our podcast where they were talking about the Colin Baker era that the stories were better in the comic than they were actually on the TV? And that's yeah. probably I, that was the longest period I I bought the magazine before I stopped and then I started again when the new series came on. But those John Ridgway drawn stories were just brilliant, and that's probably why I hold a higher affection for the Colin Baker era than I do for the McCoy era. And I think and you, it really did have on. an effect on me. When they said that, I thought, no, do you know what? They're absolutely right. And in my head, I have more affection for that time purely because that is kind of where I lay my uh, compass as far as the Colin Baker era is those stories that the, he did. That doctor was involved in some really amazing stories, but they weren't necessarily on television. And, you know, this is why I don't get why you don't like Sylvester McCoy, because in the Sylvester McCoy years, they were actually putting stories like the ones that were in the cartoon strip on the television screen. But they didn't look as lovely as John Ridgway's drawings. Well, that's what I'm saying. You can't... I'm not going to fault something for having low production values. No, absolutely not. I mean, as long as the idea's there. No, but I... I well, I've said this again <clears> and again and again. I think there were a lot of other choices, like casting and things like that, that, that I have trouble with as well. And music, yeah, the package. And probably, you know, do you know what? I've never read a novel. I've never read a Tiger novel, one of the McCoy stories, and I should, because I'd probably really, really, you know, I'd probably get a different angle on things. Yeah, read the oh, Curse, yeah. Curse of Fenwick. It's pretty good. You should try that one. It's got a lot in it, a lot. Um, yeah, the, I was going to say about the, the music, actually, um, of this season. Did it did it change from season 22, the music, or was it the same? You know, oh God! Tune. I'm one of these people to whom the music is kind of a bit of a mystery, really. Oh, all right, okay. I'm no, one of these I, people who doesn't remember it. I was. Deep, I think. I think upset of the how, music. How weak it was. <laughs> really, I think the music in Trial of a Time Lord was probably some of the better 1980s music. If I'm frank. 
Oh, the incidental stuff was, yeah. That was the, yeah. The theme tune was in there. Oh, you mean the theme tune? Yeah. Oh, sorry. the theme tune was the worst one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you like it, do you, Sammy? No, I don't like it, but it's not as bad as the, uh, the Kef McCulloch one. Oh, actually, yeah, you're oh, right. No, I think most people think of the Kef McCulloch, as bad as his incidental music was, I think a lot of people like his theme mm. and prefer it to the one that was on this. Hmm. Fair dues. That's, that's fine. I think the, the one that's on this just feels like a really flat remix of the Peter Davison music. Yeah, it's got all the guts taken out of it. Yeah, it feels like it's the same the same elements, but remixed to take out the life. <laughs> that B-side coming in again. Oh, did uh, Colin Baker mm. do... Uh, it, it, he wrote his own comic strip, didn't he? With Frobisher. He wrote... Right? I think he wrote... I know yeah. he definitely wrote one. I think he might even have written two. Do you know what? Even that was better than most of the trial of the Time Lord. He could have. Okay, we've episode. ragged on it just about <laughs> enough now, guys. No, I loved it. I thought it was one of the best seasons ever. No, it's a joke. <laughs> for anyone who hasn't read it, look for the collected comics of Voyager because it is—it's really beautiful. It's lovely. So, in summing up, Trial of the Time Lord uh, is probably a real return to form after a bit of a dip and paved the way for some glorious what am i talking about <laughs> trial of the time lord <laughs> oh bless it <clears throat> it's oh well, i said it earlier didn't i it's one of the few bits of doctor who that i find really difficult to watch well i think you said it in the sigh you went it's uh, i mm. think that that sums it up <laughs> well i mean i say it every every time we do something like this i i find it I find it very annoying when people rag on stuff without trying to find the good bits. You know, uh, you should never mm. just put something down. No, there's plenty of good stuff in this. There's mm. loads of good stuff in it. It's just scattered uh, like a, a fractured mirror mm. smashed on the floor. Um, it's a shame. Yeah, I think it would be so much easier to watch. You know, I, I've said it throughout this podcast, the coherency. It, but it's like ev for every... Yeah, but that's a kind of an analogy. It's like five minutes in every 15 minutes is worth the watching, but you have to get through the 10 minutes in between to get there. Mm -hmm. And you know what I mean? That's not quite what I mean, but that's kind of about the ratio. And it just makes it really a struggle to get to the bits that are worth seeing. And um, it's it's interesting relating it to the new series uh, for anyone who has issues with story arcs. Here's a story arc that's intrusive and undermining through through throughout the series, mm. and um, yeah, it, it could have. It's been not even a story that. arc. It's no, I know. You know, it's like, it's not a story arc. It's a story. It's just a really badly framed story. Mm. It's just a bad idea from start to finish. You know, this is the proof, if anyone needed, that John Nathan Turner, for all his, you know, for all his. Um, attributes elsewhere his big fault was he didn't understand storytelling because when Eric Sayward brought him this idea he should have booted it out of the room immediately mm. it, well you know on paper it probably looks like a nice idea I tell you what the series is on trial let's let's reflect that on screen and um, but if you're going to do it do it much more with much more subtlety than this yeah yeah absolutely very easy to say in hindsight, isn't it, when you're in the thick of it? But, you know, you'd, you'd like to think that because they had some extra time, that it was going off off air for so long that they would have a bit of extra time to 
get it a bit more oomphy. Um, and that kind of ended with those opening effects, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, it did feel, the whole season felt lazy uh, because, you know, they had a chance here to really muck it out and do something different and make it something else because, you know, I suppose it survived a few more years, but like you say, it was the beginning of the end, really. With that, with Michael Grade looking at that, he probably thought, well, they haven't done anything different. Um, you know, I've given them a chance and this is what they produce. So, you know, they could have done, got diversified. They could have gone somewhere different. They should have just basically got a new production team in. That's what I reckon. Blood transfusion. Well, I don't, it's, <coughs> it's the script editor. Mm. I think John Nathan Turner proved the following year and for the two years after that that he still had it. Even if his heart might not have been in it, he was still doing a good job. And, it, and, he, so. and he did get new blood in, but it, it mm. didn't. It didn't help because of the... Um... Well, he was kind of forced to get new blood in, so it wasn't by choice. But he went for a really brave choice. He picked somebody who was untested and who ultimately, I think history shows, did a much better job than anyone might have expected. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think we should do season 24 actually fairly soon and make you sit and watch them all, Simon. I've already said on Facebook that my one of my New Year resolutions is to watch the McCoy series all the way through. I'll tell you what with, then, with try a, and do it in eyes, order you know. and once you've got through season 24 we'll do the podcast on that. Okay. And that's all right. That's beginning with Time and the Rani. Uh, time and the Rani, yeah. Okay, we might not, maybe not do them in order but do the four stories of season 24 first. Don't do God. Time and the Rani first, it'll put you off. No, let's go. Let's go. Do you know what? It's quite fresh in my mind. And I, you know, it's the first McCoy story and I can make a few notes. I can enjoy it for what it is. I think it's actually a lot more enjoyable then. But we'll get to that. I We've quite, got one more. Like We've the, got one more email on the trial of a Time Lord. So let's do that. And then uh, let's get out of here. Okay. <clears throat> this is from Richard Judge. He says, and then again, this is in order of how he liked the stories. He says, Mind Warp. He says, visually it stands up much better than a lot of the 80s stories and it's not a bad script. I actually prefer this one to Vengeance on Varos. I would have liked to have seen this made in a different season. And that's an interesting point. Without the trial stuff, perhaps it could have been a better story. Terror of the Vervoids is his second vote and he doesn't say anything about that. But then his third vote was for the ultimate foe. All you have to do is watch a Deadly Assassin at episode 3 and then The Ultimate Foe to gauge how far the quality of every aspect of the show had fallen. And in last place he puts The Mysterious Planet and says simply, in my opinion, the absolute worst story ever made. Overall, season 23 is definitely my least favourite season. JNT and Sayward had previously occasionally shown that they could produce decent Doctor Who, with twice as long in the planning stage than any previous season, and with the serious threat of cancellation hanging over them, this should have been one of their best. Though the whole thing is an embarrassing, misjudged mess. On its original transmission, Mysterious Planet Episode 4 was the tipping point for me. I was embarrassed to watch it, and it was like the Doctor Who I loved was not ever coming back. I have watched the whole Trial of a Time Lord since, and even now I can't stand it. It doesn't even feel like Doctor Who to me. More like something aimed directly for children and not the family show it always should be. Mm. <clears throat> there you go, that was Richard Judge. And he's pretty he- pretty much echoed a lot of the things I've said. <clears throat> I wonder if he's of a similar age as well. 
Maybe so. Maybe you'll write in and tell us. But then that makes sense with me in the McCoy era afterwards. Yeah, maybe so, maybe so. so. I think you do struggle when you get to your 20s. Yeah. I think a lot of stuff that I didn't especially like in the 1980s, I've gone back and reevaluated. And to be fair, I've still found an awful lot of it wanting. And it's only in the McCoy years, really, that I've discovered to be a lot better than I thought they were originally. Anyway, we should say goodnight, so uh, I will tease next week actually now because um, even though you know it wasn't organised and set up in time to have it for this week, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Warren Fry from um, Radio Free Scarrow mm-hmm. and Kyle Anderson from Doctor Who The Writer's Room yeah. and we are going to be discussing the suspension of disbelief mm-hmm. in and how it relates to Doctor Who and things of that ilk. That sounds fantastic. It's a podcast I'm quite looking forward to doing, mm-hmm. and I've, and it's one that I wanted to do with these two guys because they both talk about this kind of stuff in their own podcast. Mm-hmm. So I thought the three of us sticking our heads together, we hopefully will have a really interesting conversation about it. Have a good time, sir. We'll see you in a few weeks. Yeah, we'll be back in a fortnight to talk about something else that we'll have to decide. (laughs) Okay then, I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon.